This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Deep Dives Podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and with me, I have a very special guest, the curator of Vibes himself, the NBA Draft Dude, is here, Corey Tolliba. Corey, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, uh, I am doing as well as I possibly can on, on this Wednesday afternoon. I There have been some slight complications with the audio. We're going to hope that it's going great uh, on everybody else's end. But you know what? Um, I'm really excited to be here. This is my first time on Deep Dives. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the guys we're going to, you know, talk about and discuss today and, you know, maybe a little bit of philosophy and, and stuff as well. So uh, thank you for, for having me on the show. And let's let's get let's get to it. So if you are not hearing this properly, Corey confessed to the audio issues being on his end, so if you need someone to blame, again, that's Corey Tulliba at <laughs> Corey Tulliba on... No. Anyway, so today we're going to be talking about your most recent article over at NoCeilingsMBA.com on the prospect chemistry of one Marcus Sasser. And I want to start off where you start off with the piece, which is, and I'm just going to quote you directly here, Most people in the draft community hate NBA player comps when evaluating NBA prospects. I'm not one of them. So, first of all, as the editor, strong lead, strong lead, very well done there. But second of all, I just want to talk through the draft philosophy of this really quickly, because the discussion around player comps is something that I find very interesting, because I feel like they're incredibly important, And I feel like they get short shrift from a lot of people in the draft community, but I also feel like I really struggle with finding player comps that make sense. And your Draft Act co-host and our colleague, Albert Gim, always makes comparisons to 90s NBA players. And for me, you know, that's part of the struggle, honestly, is just with how much the NBA has changed over the last 10 years, it's difficult to find player comps that make sense really as a one-to-one comparison. And so, you know, you introduced the article with sort of talking about the prospect chemistry idea And so you are not one of the people who is out on NBA comps. And since that's the case, I wanted to just talk through that with you briefly. So sort of generally speaking, let's start with that. What are your thoughts on the idea of player comps and sort of how do you go about making them in maybe responsibles, not the right word, but sort of going about making them in a responsible manner? Responsible might be the right word, because I think that maybe they started getting a bad rap when I believe it was NBA draft.net compared to Sean Stevenson to Michael Jordan in their player comparisons uh, thing on their profile. And I think that's where they get really tricky and a little dangerous because people I think want to rush to what is the ultimate outcome 
for a prospect when you were giving a player comp. And typically that player is like a multi-time all-star, all-NBA, potentially Hall of Fame level player. So if your player comp is starting there, you're immediately getting yourself in trouble because you're setting a bar that is almost unreachable. Now, there are certainly going to be prospects every now and then who who hit that bar. But for the most part, you're just putting these enormous expectations that, especially for like people who are casually into the draft, when they go and read this stuff as somebody whose team either didn't make the playoffs or just got eliminated from the playoffs and that now they're starting to do their research, like these are the resources that they are using to form their conclusions. And when ultimately they draft a player, even high in the lottery, and you know Johnny Davis doesn't look like Devin Booker right away, you start to you know uh, almost feel like a resentment towards the, uh, a player who's not even a quarter way through uh, their rookie year. So, in that sense, you do have to be responsible when making player comps. As you mentioned, you know when we do it on the draft act, uh, we do it mostly as like a. Um, a way to have a little bit of fun with a segment. Albert always does 90s comps. And as the game has evolved, it's harder and harder to strictly make that one-to-one comp in that context because the game is almost completely different. But when I did it and what I, you know, wanted to do with Marcus Sasser and what I'll I'll be doing throughout the rest of you know this cycle is going a little deeper into the player comparison territory and not necessarily saying this person is going to turn out to be like this, but I'm going to take, I see bits and pieces of this player and this player and this player, because I think if, you know, just in, in general, I think we're all influenced by certain things. And if, if you're a musician, you're going to listen to certain bands and you're going to take things from those bands and implement it into your writing style. And you'll be able to hear those influences in sports. You're going to be able to see those influences by, you know, the, the, evolution of basketball. So when I approached this Marcus Sasser, I said, okay, where can I find patterns? And part of that starts with watching a lot of NBA basketball, identifying players in a specific archetype that you probably think that the player fits into. And with Marcus Sasser, it's, you know, he's a uh, smaller guard uh, who is really good with the ball in his hands and is a high volume three-point shooter. So, you know, you want to start with that kind of guard and then you're watching for certain things what kind of combo moves are they using to create space um you know how are they operating with or without the ball just certain little basketball things that you can chunk together and put into categories and then find patterns and and with with sasser you know i was able to almost find like identical play types with NBA guards. And, you know, I wasn't shooting for, again, like Marcus Sasser is a high volume three point scoring guard. So I didn't go to Dame Lillard and Steph Curry. I still went to players that are very talented, you know, guys who got big contracts, but guys who I think that, you know, maybe there is a more realistic outcome out there for with other guys who, you know, Sasser is, he came in at 21 on, on the draft rankings. You know, I, I went and looked at guys who maybe fit his kind of profile physically but also dropped into the twenties in their draft for a myriad of reasons. And, you know, because of Sasser's age, I think he's going to fall in that category as well. And I think that, you know, it, it, he, he's a guy who I could see outperforming those expectations because I was able to find little patterns of things that he does that has bred NBA success for other players. 
So we'll get more in-depth on the three players that you specifically highlighted as comparisons for Sasser, but I wanted to sort of stay with the general conversation here for a bit because, you know, you mentioned sort of how difficult it can be to comp players to, you know, players historically, given how much the game has changed over the last 10 years, and... I think, you know, in addition to the Deshaun Stevenson to Michael Jordan, which is an interesting comp, you know, I think over the last five years or so, we've gotten every super athletic 6'7", six, 6'8", six, wing who can't shoot is Kawhi Leonard. They just need to rebuild the jump shot and everything else is just compared to Kawhi Leonard. Right. right. Or, you know, any big man who can defend two through five at some level and is a really great off-ball defender and can pass a little is the next Draymond Green, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, one level of comparison that we're talking here. But, you know, when we're talking about prospect chemistry and how we've done it over No Ceilings, you know, again, I don't claim to have a great handle on this. It's something that I, again, struggle with when I'm sort of making evaluations. But, you know, I always try to pick one player in the evaluation set who's, you know, sort of a quote-unquote lower-end outcome. Like, for when I was doing Jaden Ivey, it's like, I, they can't, I can't just have John Wall and Russell Westbrook and Zach Levine be the comps, right? That's, you know, that's very optimistic. And as you mentioned already, putting a huge expectation on these players that when they don't, you know, immediately succeed at the NBA level, or even when they succeed at the NBA level, but not to all-star, all-NBA kind of stratum, you know, then it gets lumped onto these players as sort of a negative that hangs over them. And I don't know, it's sort of an interesting balance to strike of, you know, okay, the high-end skills really compare very well with this elite, elite NBA player, and that's, you know, the positives to it, that's the, you know, top-tier ceiling, highest upside that I see for this prospect, but, you know, and you do this in the piece with Sasser as well, but if you're only comparing to high-end guys, you know, you lump a ridiculous expectation on them. On the flip side, you know, if you're only like, okay, you know, an average eighth player in the draft is usually like the seventh or eighth man in the rotation, so I can only pick, like, end-of-the-bench guys as my comps, you're doing a player a disservice when you do it on that end. Yeah, it, it is a hard balance to strike, especially, like, you know, when we're doing it for our draft guide, it's we're at a certain character limit for, you know, how many words we could use because, you know, a page literally is a certain amount of space that you just can't build further out on. Right. So when we do the prospect chemistry, it's kind of a tool for the reader to just get like a general sense of the type of play style, right? Like it's, it, we're not necessarily necessarily saying this player is going to turn into these players. It's just like, Hey, if, this is the first time you're learning about Brandon Miller, you know, maybe you've never seen him because, you know, as a preseason guide or whatever, it's like, you know, he plays a little bit like Paul George, maybe because of the role he's going to be in at Alabama. Maybe there, there could be defensively some Herb Jones things. And it's just to give you like, Hey, look out for this. Right. And then you'll read our scouting report and you'll get a, a little bit more in depth feeling on who this player is and then, you know, as we go on through the year, you'll start seeing the written pieces that integrate video work, and then you'll actually see video stuff to go along with it. So at least, you know, what we're doing at No Ceilings, we're giving a fuller context for players than, you know, maybe one of your friends in a group chat who's like, I watch Brandon Miller, he looks exactly like Paul George. And then it's like, so one of, you know, your other friends watched the UNC game and he's four for 21. And then you're like, this guy sucks because I thought he was going to be Paul George. Right. Because, you know, we also have to remember not everybody's watching the same 
film because there's so much of it and you have to kind of pick and choose. Um, so that's kind of where the, the balance is. And I, I think expanding on the concept of prospect chemistry is something I wanted to do this year as a fuller way to give you more context to these comparisons than just a throwaway line in where you can over-exaggerate uh, you know, under exaggerate, just whatever direction, either way, you're trending towards a player, especially because, you know, like, like you said, like if we have the, the 24th, 25th guy on our board and we're giving just all-star comps or just guys who didn't pan out, then it, it it's almost confusing for the reader. Cause you're like, all right, so if this guy has uh Scotty Barnes on his prospect chemistry, then why is he the 25th ranked guy? Scotty Barnes is awesome. So it's, it's difficult, but I think that you know, me trying to dig a little deeper and give examples of why I'm giving the shades of the prospect chemistry, a little bit of this, a little bit of that with basically like one clip or a couple of clips of the prospect doing a certain basketball uh, sequence and then an NBA sequence that it mirrors that it helps you understand how you get to the point with the names that we bring up. So let's dive deep now into the specifics of the prospect chemistry comparisons for Marcus Sasser. And the player that you started out with here is Tyrese Maxey. And a lot of that is due to the frequency and proficiency of their stepbacks. And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, comparing the modern NBA to the NBA 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, one of the biggest sort of skill differences is that the step back jumper has become a huge part of the skill package for basically any undersized guard who needs to be able to create separation and score over their opponents. So I wanted to start with that. What did you see in Marcus Sasser's step backs that reminded you of Tyrese Maxey? Uh, for me, it was kind of, it was the footwork, the patterns of footwork, and it was kind of like the suddenness of how quickly he can execute it. Uh, you know, like, it, there's one specific step back that I start out with, where, you know, it kind of goes from like a crossover into a between the legs. And then there's like that, this new age kind of like double step back where you're using, you know, your your little like hang dribble that technically doesn't count as you know a, a a step in your travel to get like that extra room and I, I think the proficiency and just how perfectly it was executed is it, it immediately drew me to like oh I I remember this being a skill that Tyrese Maxey kind of has so then you go and you watch and you're like oh yeah like that's almost exactly the same move and one of the reasons that I like Tyrese Maxey and I, I went there early is because they're both listed at six, three in shoes and they both have uh, six, seven wingspans and Tyrese Maxey, who was a guy I had top 10 in that draft, even though he fell because I believe that his shot was real and the percentages are sometimes they could be misleading because college can be a smaller sample size and there's weird things that happen. Like right now, Marcus Sasser, I think is shooting in the 20% right now, but he's right. So you're like, all right, this guy is supposed to be a good shooter, but he's also taking seven to eight, three point attempts a game. A lot of them self-created and we're only six or seven games into a season. If he has one hot game where he goes like six of seven, all of a sudden his percentage could be like, 36, 37%, and it all, eventually it will even out. Like last year, it was a 12-game sample, which is still not a full season's worth, and he was in 
I think the the forties um, percentage wise. So like, uh, it's it's one of these things where for me with shooting, I'm not so concerned about percentages. For me, it's an eye test thing, and the eye test matched with both of these guys. So regardless of um, the percentages, I see that this is something that I believe is going to translate to the next level. It's something that I believed with Tyrese Maxey, regardless of the percentages. You know, there was one. Sometimes there are like little moments that stand out and. Uh, I believe it was like Tyrese Maxey's first game. I think they were playing Michigan State. It was probably the Champions Classic. And he hit like this ridiculously deep three um, in like a big moment. And I was like, wow, like that is an NBA caliber move. Now with that, you do it. You want to see consistency and constantly hitting those. But when young players have that, especially in a role where you're going to be the the main guy in college versus, all right, Marcus Sasser is not going to be the number one option in the NBA. He's probably not going to be the number two option in the NBA, but if he's the third or fourth option, he's going to be able to get these moves off pretty effortlessly, in my opinion, especially because he's going to be playing off of all these great players. So I feel similarly to Tyrese Maxey, who is getting the chance to play off of Joel Embiid and James Harden, and he was playing off Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris and like the game will be more open, more spread out and easier. And when you're able to execute like they are with these step backs off the bounce, it's going to open up other opportunities that we cover later on. Um, and and I, I just think that how they execute them with their footwork and the consistency and the quickness and the suddenness that they do it just really matched up in my eyes. Uh, so, you know, it was that. And then being able to do it in one dribble, you know, I used another clip where they both literally are getting a pass and then they basically use a hard plant to draw the defense and then it's one dribble. So it's like, they don't have to dance with the ball. The the way, the different ways they could do it. I found a lot of similarities in the variety of their shots as well. So we're going to get a little bit off track here, but I'm fascinated by this particular discussion topic. So I wanted to sort of circle back to it regarding the shooting percentages. Now I have said on this podcast numerous times that I refer to myself as a partial free throw truther. And what I mean by that is The sample size of three-point shooting, even over the course of an NBA season, is not necessarily indicative of how good of a shooter that player is. You know, there are guys who, some of the premier three-point shooters in NBA history might have one down season or even two down seasons where, you know, they get a couple of rim outs and all of a sudden that 40% from three goes down to 35% from three. And that's even more prevalent in the college game. And I, you know, kind of cruelly refer to it as the... Derek Williams principle of um, yeah. if someone shoots 40% from three, that does not necessarily mean that they're a 40% three point cheater. And the sample size on free throws is almost always larger. And, you know, also there's less variance between, you know, an 80% free throw shooter is a better shooter than a 60% free throw shooter. Whereas a 40% free throw or three point shooter might've hit two more three pointers than a 35% three point shooter and might actually be worse if you look at it over the longer term. So I don't know, it's really interesting for me to try and puzzle that sort of thing out because I don't, you know, want to throw away three point percentage entirely for college players, but I mean, the example that I used last season was Iverson Molinar, who was a 40-plus percent three-point junior in his sophomore year and an 80% free-throw shooter. And then his junior year, his free-throw percentage jumps up to 88%. His three-point percentage falls off a cliff to, like, I think it ended up 
this season at like 27%, something in that range. And, you know, my sort of conclusion there is given that he has shown such fantastic touch from the line, given that this is someone who you don't, you know, have any doubts about his shot form or his release, right? I mean, I mean, his shot wasn't perfect, but, you know, at the end of the day, if the idea being that if you're just looking at the three-point percentage numbers, you might end up looking at the wrong time in a player's swing and be convinced that they're either much more of a shooter than they are or much less of a shooter than they are. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you on the partial free throw percentage thing because I've also been a guy who, like, I was very in on Davion. And I didn't believe that he was a 45% three-point shooter or whatever he ended up with that championship year. Um, but I also didn't believe that he wasn't going to be, you know, a, a shooting threat in the NBA just because he was consistently shooting free throws in the 60%, you know, um, and now he hasn't been a great shooter in the NBA, but I think that he's certainly somebody that teams when he has the ball in his hands are stepping up to and contesting. Right. So while he maybe is a little streaky, he's not a guy that you're just leaving completely open and you're like, let him let it fly because he can knock it down and he will get hot. Right. So I, I think shooting, it's like, it's hard to have principled stances on. And I think it's a, a lot of things because you kind of need to take everything with a, like a one-on-one basis by basis um, perspective. So, you know, like I, another interesting thing that you say though, about the, the, the free throws kind of translating to, uh, you know, being a good three-point shooter. One of the things I've been wondering is like, one of the reasons I was uh, higher on Brandon Miller to start the year than I would say the consensus is because when I watched his film, I thought he operated really well as a mid range shooter. And I I'm kind of of the belief that if you can operate in the mid range and knock down shots there, you can eventually kind of bring that back out to the three point line. As long as your, your form is functional and like it looks good coming off your hands in the mid range. And I almost feel like, shouldn't there be a somewhat of a correlation between the mid range and a free throw where it's similar distances. And I, I I hear the free throw thing a lot as a philosophy thing. I don't really hear the mid range thing as well. Now I, maybe there's no correlation, but it's just something I've kind of been thinking of in my head lately of like, maybe we should be looking at certain, if you're like pre scouting a guy in high school or even in college, like, Maybe the mid-range is something that you look at as like, okay, that looks good. He shoots that at a decent percentage. Maybe he could stretch that out and not just like do something like look at, okay, well, he's a good free throw shooter, even though the percentages aren't bad. Like maybe there's there's also something other ways. But I, I think what the larger point is for me, what does the form look like? If the form is repeatable, if there's good touch, like I think that, that's something that I could feel confident in, even if the percentages aren't there. Cause I think the NBA is really good at developing shooters now. And some teams are better than others, but I, I think when you have a solid base to work with and you don't have to completely rebuild it, you could probably bet on it getting to an appropriate level, but shooting is a weird thing. There's it's an inexact science. And so much of it is like mental makeup too. Like shooting is a confidence thing, you know, like, and that's just really tough to measure. You know, like I, I, I'm sure Ben Simmons could be a perfectly like a, a low end adequate shooter, right? He's probably a guy that ultimately, if he if he tried, would shoot like in the 30 percent, like the very low 30s as a three point shooter at like three or four a game. His confidence won't allow him to do that. 
right? So he can't get better at it because he won't try. There's a lot of elements that are go into shooting that I, I think you just kind of have to pick and choose and, and see individually like, all right, the free throw percentage is good. Maybe that'll translate. But what are the other factors to look at as well? Um, and in an NBA context, what's their role going to be? Are they shooting similar shots in the NBA that they're going to shoot in college uh, or in the G League or internationally? Like, what's their like? There's so many things that go into it that it's it's very very nuanced. Yeah, no, that's that that's I think really the main conclusion is there are so many factors that go into it. I mean, even with free throws, you know that I brought up being a partial free throw truther. Even then, you have people like Bruce Bowen. Yeah, forty percent, from the free throw line. And one thing that I saw a while ago, and I don't remember who it was that got this picture, but basically it was, you know, the numbers of the, I think it was the 2012 Lakers or one of the Lakers teams that had Dwight Howard on it. And, you know, it was like Dwight Howard, who's like a 50s, 60s free throw shooter at the NBA level. In practices, it was at 82% or something like that. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing where it's like, he clearly has the touch, he clearly can do it. But, you know, if it's just a pure confidence thing, then clearly that's where it gets to him. That's where he gets shaken. And, you know, that's the other thing with, you know, if you can shoot 80% from the free throw line in practice, I have a feeling you could probably knock down a decent percentage of your unguarded mid-range jumpers, right? Right. Purely in theory. But, you know, Dwight Howard never hit that, and a number of big men in the league who are solid free throw shooters never do that. The flip side is, you know, the example that I usually go back to with this is watching Brooke Lopez on the Nets. It's like this guy is an 80% free throw shooter. He's an absolute technician in the mid range, right? He has one of the best mid range jumpers in the league, but he just never stretched out those extra five feet. Then all of a sudden, you know, we get to late career Brook Lopez, and he's basically purely like a stretch five, like almost exclusively a three-point shooter who, you know, occasionally will destroy someone on the block if you throw a guard at him. But that's not, you know, the basis of his game now. And, you know, that's sort of where I guess it's interesting for me to try and evaluate these guys. Because, you know, if you're just looking at, okay, he's never taken a three-point shot, he's not going to be a three-point shooter, versus if you get someone who's super proficient in the mid-range to try and push it out a few steps, I mean, you know, that's... You brought up Brandon Miller, and that's, I think, something that, you know, early in the season, he's knocked down a ton of his three-pointers, and it's like, wow, is this guy a three-point shooter? It's like, well, if you saw his mid-range film in high school, you could think, yeah, you know, there's a chance that he could push that out. I don't think I expected him to be a 40% three-point shooter right away at the college level. But it's Me either. Except, I don't think anybody except Brandon Miller knows that. That's a different matter, but... He had the touch from the mid-range that made it very clear that, you know, this is someone who has the hand-eye coordination and has the, you know, perception of the getting the ball in the basket, the proprioception or whatever term you want to use there. You know, it's something that he's shown at an 18-foot level, you know, really it's just going to be reps and confidence to push it out another five feet. Yeah, and I think another example, and it's something that I, I think I've mentioned before, um, I think that floater touch is probably another good example. And I think that's one of the reasons why I am a little bit higher on Anthony Black's shooting than other people are, because I, I get the percentages. I mean, the percentages right now after his Maui trip and, and the last game are actually pretty good. Like uh, not Brandon Miller, a level of, of hotness, but maybe something that signifies a little bit more of a sustainable percentage, even if it dips, you know, to 
33% for the season. Ultimately, some of the, the, the touch that he shows on these floaters ultimately leads me to believe like he's going to be able to at least knock down open catch and shoot threes at another point of his career. I think like in Australia, LaMelo was a terrible three point shooter, but he showed this really incredible touch on these floaters from like all the way out to the free throw line. So I think that there might even be something there where there, there could be a correlation in, in ultimately how you shoot. And with, um, Anthony black, it's not only his floater touch, his passing touch being so on the money and, and the timing of it and everything. I like, even that is something that I believe is ultimately something that like will help lead him to be a better shooter one day because he's able to place the ball so perfectly with such touch in so many different places in so many different scenarios that I I think that like the shooting again, like for somebody like him, it'll be a confidence thing. Like, is he confidently going to shoot it or is he second guessing himself? I think he's going to be a guy who confidently at least shoots it at a catch and shoot level, which, you know, for, for somebody like him, I think most people aren't like, this is a lead guard on a team. He's probably more of like a connecting piece. You're hoping he's like a, a Derek white Lonzo ball type of player. And, and, you know, if you could knock down consistently catch and shoot threes while doing all that other stuff, I think that's important. And for me, it's the, wow, that floater looks really nice. I think that's going to translate to shooting eventually. And, and that's the the fun thing about what we do. You, it, It's a something you're looking at it in its infancy and you get to watch grow over years. You just have to be patient with, you know, kind of like the the shooting perspective of it all. So if we're talking about confidence and watching it grow over years, we should move on to the next player who you compared to Marcus Sasser here. And I think I've said this before, but I will say it again, but I don't think I've ever been more wrong about a prospect than I was about Jordan Poole. I didn't see any way that it made sense to draft him at all his year, much less take him in the first round. And his first season in the NBA, it looked like I might be right. His second season in the NBA looked a bit more iffy. And by year three, it was like, okay, I was dead wrong on this guy. And, you know, a huge part of it is that shooting confidence that you mentioned. And certainly for Sasser, especially given that, you know, as you noted, that he hasn't He's taken the three-pointers, but he hasn't quite hit them this year. The confidence is a huge part of the reason why you expect those shots to go down again in the future. And, I mean, if you're talking about a player who's built almost his entire career on confidence, it's harder to find a more accurate comparison for that than Jordan Poole. Yeah, for sure. You know, Jordan Poole, I mean, I I don't think I was, like, super deep into his draft in a way that I was, like, really scouting a like the the full spectrum of of guys but when i watched the limited tape that i did of him it, like i won't take credit for being right because i i didn't do a deep enough dive but i was like this is a guy who how he he has nba moves to his skill set and sometimes i think it could be as simple as like that matters you know and then it from there it's like what's the situation because on one hand you can have somebody go to the warriors who aren't going to let him do whatever he wants has to fit into a certain system is willing to put you down in the G league and develop. And like, that'll humble you a little bit. And ultimately you get the positive side of it. And then on the other side, and obviously I were very early in his career too. the player I'm about to mention, uh, Cam Thomas, you know, he might be a guy who 
he might just not be able to get it on the nets. Maybe he needs another situation somewhere with a little bit more freedom. And maybe he's not willing to play a more, you know, kind of cohesive brand of basketball. He might just want to do what he does. Right. And, you know, there's, that's the reason that I think he dropped in the draft as well. Nobody questioned his ability to be able to do these things and score at the level. I think he's proven he can score at whatever level he plays at. It's can you score and still be cohesive in a team construct? And Jordan Poole has proven that he can. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's his shot making is not just I need to dribble the ball a bunch of times before I can shoot it. There's so many different ways that he's able to get into his shot. So I, I think that is a, a very important element because you see different things that I highlight in the piece where it's like, OK, he is self-creating here. He's he's got a bag. But a lot of what he does is beneficial to him by playing with a bunch of high IQ guys who are able to kind of allow him to leverage what he can do on the ball and off the ball and just kind of be a a guy who's really difficult to guard because you don't know how he's going to get that shot off. And even if he's running off a million screens, once he does get it, he's now able to, you know, make quick decisions and, you know, he, he can hit you with a cross or a step back or whatever, but it's it's quick and in motion. So it, like so much of NBA success uh, again is the situation that you walk into, especially with these guys who are drafted in, you know, the final third of the first round of the NBA draft. So I think what's really interesting that connects Sasser to Maxi and Poole is their ability to get separation quickly get separation with one dribble or two dribble moves rather than having to pound the air out of the ball to the space that they need to create a shot. And, you know, with Poole, certainly that's something that helped him fit into the context of a team that had a player score 60 points on 11 dribbles, right? You know, yeah. his, his ability to just, you know, be someone who's comfortable catching and shooting right away, you know, curling off screens, or also just, you know, couple dribbles into a move to create a shot you know, that I think is going to be huge. And the comparison there with Cam Thomas, I mean, for me, the Cam Thomas evaluation was, okay, he can score. Can he do anything else at a level where I'm comfortable with projecting him out to an NBA level? And, you know, that was where I struggled with Cam Thomas is what else will he do? And furthermore, will he score in a context that is beneficial to his team or beneficial to Cam Thomas? And with Marcus Sasser, you know, it seems like he's got that in common with Maxi and Poole. And certainly, Poole was someone who I struggled to project fitting into a team context, and yet he did. And, you know, the one side of it is, okay, you know, I was wrong. Clearly, he is proven to be a much better NBA player than I thought he would be. But the flip side is, if he had been drafted 27th by, you know, and not to not to hate on my own team here, but if he'd been drafted 27th overall by the Sacramento Kings, would he still be in the NBA? Maybe not, right? And that's, you know, context plays a huge part in it for a lot of players, but particularly when we're talking, as you said, about guards who ended up falling into the mid to late 20s, you know, ending up in a good context could mean that you, by year three, year four, are a Tyrese Maxey, Jordan Poole, like top end of the rotation on track for a, you know, $100 million plus dollar contract versus, you know, out of the league and trying to make a name for yourself in Europe, maybe. Yeah, and you know, I, I didn't touch on the playmaking or anything from from Sasser much in the piece. I did highlight one piece from the combine just because the it, I thought it was a good way to illustrate how you need to have different counters to the way that the defense guards you in different scenarios. So you know, he 
had a play uh, coming off a, a, a pass to a, a handoff from a big man where he like one time the defense went under and he knocked down the three. And then there was a, a, another play where the, the defense kind of blitzed him and he was able to hit the roller. So, but I didn't touch on his playmaking beyond that. I think what Jordan Poole has been able to do it at the NBA level is learn how to leverage the threat of his shot to make guys better. And we didn't really see that too much in college, but he's definitely shown the willingness to do it in the NBA. And he's, I think, improved by leaps and bounds. And a lot of that is being in the system and the, the development team that he's had in Golden State. Cam Thomas, he still has those questions to answer throughout his career. Of can he do anything else, right? Because he didn't show that you know, in college. He was, I mean, it was impressive that he was able to score at the efficiency in which he did because he was so great at getting to the free throw line uh, that it didn't really matter if the team knew he was going to shot or not. He was still going to score efficiently. But you, you, as a guard, it's really hard to survive now in this modern NBA. I feel like even it's shifted over the last couple of years where teams just want to play like this quick .5 basketball where you have to make snappy decisions and if you don't have anything you have to move off the ball and then after you move off the ball you have to go move somewhere else i think that sasser has a path there similar to pool because um one i think his you know he he does play with the ball in his hands and i think he has you know some playmaking chops as a point guard whereas cam thomas even though he was the same size as a point guard was strictly a a shooting guard emphasis on the shooting so i think yes. that sasser has that kind of same trajectory chance as a guy like pool Tyrese Maxey didn't play point guard in college either and didn't get a chance to show much playmaking chops and was used primarily as like an off ball mover who wasn't even getting a chance to really show much creation with the ball in his hands because um, he played with Ashton Hagens, which, you know, if you've listened to my show over the years, you know that I have an award named after Ashton Hagens as the, the point guard that uh, is in the way of a draft prospect from maximizing their potential. Uh, Alonzo Verge has been back-to-back -back winner over the last couple of years. So I do think, though, that Marcus Sasser has the, the chance to go more in the way of Jordan Poole than Cam Thomas because he has shown some of the playmaking. He has shown the ability to leverage and make decisions based off of kind of the threat of what he can do with the ball in his hands. So that that's one of the reasons that, because I'm sure I could have found clips of Cam Thomas, you know, making similar, you know, uh, movement patterns to, to Sasser as well. But I think that Sasser does have those other things that kind of put him in a, a different tier for me as, as what NBA teams could be looking for out of his role. So I do want to discuss the third player that you brought up in the Sasser comparison, especially given that we were touching on the playmaking there. The third player, I think, is actually, in my mind, the most interesting of the players that you added to the prospect chemistry for Sasser, which is Kyle Lowry. And, you know, the obvious difference between Kyle Lowry and the other two guys is Kyle Lowry is a multi-time all-star, you know, borderline Hall of Famer, and also a point guard. Whereas, you know, the other two guys are combo guards, really more shooting guards than they are point guards, you know, guys who you expect to score, but not necessarily create plays for others. And so I think Kyle Lowry as the third player in the prospect chemistry is really sort of a fascinating divergence from the Cam Thomas discussion that we were just having. You know, when you're talking about Sasser, yeah, he's kind of more of an off guard type. You're expecting him to be someone who knocks down catch and shoot looks, can create looks for himself off a couple dribbles, but not be the lead guy. Yet, with Kyle Lowry, you're drawing comparisons to, you know, him 
as a lead guy. So what are your thoughts there on sort of the similarities between Sasser and Lowry and, you know, his playmaking game sort of overall? So I, I think the main kind of comparison that you would see with Kyle Lowry and Marcus Sasser is on the defensive end, which is again, I, you know, I strictly focused on their, the, the scoring aspects, but when it comes to the offensive side of the ball, I think one of the things we have to remember with Lowry is he wasn't always the Kyle Lowry that we kind of knew from Toronto. You know, he was a guy who was not much of a playmaker in college. Uh, didn't have like super high assist numbers, uh, very successful college player, but was a four year guy at Villanova. Um, and he kind of always throughout his career played off of other guys. Like, you know, he was even, he was sharing reps in college with Alan Ray, you know, so, and, and, um, Randy Foy, you know, like, so he, he, he was, he always had this ability to, yeah, he could play with the ball in his hands and he could do stuff with the ball in his hands, but he also was a guy that you could seemingly fit in with other wing players because of, from a scoring aspect, he was also a threat off of the ball. And, you know, I highlighted some of the things that he was able to do off of the ball in kind of catch and uh, shoot scenarios. Like now he's playing off Jimmy Butler. Uh, Previous to that, it was DeMar DeRozan and Kawhi Leonard. And being able to fit in with other wing players who are dominant of dominating the ball. And as we see, the NBA is trending more and more towards letting the, the big wings kind of dominate and dictate the flow of the offense, having a guy who can fit in with that, who yes, Kyle Lowry can score and he can play make, but he also doesn't need to do that to be effective. He can find other ways on the floor, whether that is getting out in transition and sprinting all the way to the corner and being able to shoot in a split second. And one of the reasons I also made the comp is I think just from a uh, strictly eye test form perspective, I think they, kind of shoot similarly you know they, they kind of both have their bodies turned a little bit and it just it aesthetically looks a little bit similar in the way that they shoot that was one the defense was the other um and then also you know like if you're a threat to shoot you can attack closeouts and get into the deep the defense do different things that's kind of what i highlighted with that but i do think that like there is a and again he's kyle lowry is another smaller guard who shares you know almost similar stature although a little you know bigger bodied than, than Marcus Sasser, but Marcus Sasser is a strong dude with a good wingspan. So I, I think just when I'm looking at like, can this guy play like any kind of a role? Am I saying that Marcus Sasser is going to be, you know, a multiple time all-star hall of famer? Probably not, but there's also a career path where that doesn't happen for Kyle Lowry. He doesn't get to the right teams in Houston, Toronto. He bounced around a lot early on. In, in his career. And, you know, part of that was mainly due because I think teams thought he had attitude issues, but there's easily a career. If you play it out again, where teams are just like, fuck this, I don't want to deal with this. And this guy's pretty good, but he's also a nuisance and he just kind of is a journeyman. Right. And he doesn't find a, a, a home to have this sustained success and become Kyle Lowry. <laughs> And that's kind of, you know, again, he dropped into the 20s himself of his draft. Like, he wasn't supposed to be Kyle Lowry. He was supposed to, you know, kind of be a backup point guard who just exceeded expectations because he had these intangible qualities and a game that was able to kind of play through different errors. You know, he, he didn't just have that, you know, I was, I was watching today's like the anniversary of Chris Duhon's 22 assist game in, in New York. Chris Duhon would have been a guy who... 
you know, maybe could have been like a, a, a backup point guard today too, but like struggled with his shooting, you know, was really pick and roll oriented. And it's like, there's probably a better pick and roll player on his team, you know? So it's like, but Kyle Lowry could fit all the way back then. And he could still play today because he doesn't have to be the guy dominating the ball and trying to make every play he learned and became a guy who can run pick and rolls and make multiple reads. But that wasn't the reason that he, you know, stuck around in the league. He stuck around in the league because he could knock down open shots throughout his career. And he was a bulldog defender, you know, and, and basically how he developed was kind of icing on the cake. And that's an important thing because college guys aren't fully formed beings. They still have room to grow, even the old ones like Marcus Sasser. But we're not talking about a guy like Marcus Sasser, who is, you know, on a mid-major team who isn't winning. Like we're talking about the number one team in the country, the best player on that team. And usually, you know, there could, there's some correlation to winning intangibles when you have an NBA skill set with a guy who is actually leading to wins consistently. This is a guy who's played in big games, you know, like throughout his, his career. And also like, he's a senior, he's a little bit older, but it's a little bit circumstance more than, um, lack of talent. Like he was on his way to a first round selection last year before he, you know, got hurt and missed the year. So, you know, I, Marcus Asser is an interesting case. And I feel like there's kind of some opportunity for a team to scoop him at a certain point in the draft and get this massive value based on some of the circumstances of him being a little bit older, kind of not fitting that six foot six, six foot seven, big point guard initiator type thing. And like, even though he's not that he has all these other skill sets that do translate to modern NBA basketball, um, that I, I kind of, that's what kind of why I'm so high on him and why I chose a guy like Kyle Lowry, who's been able to play, I don't know, 15 years through multiple, uh, iterations of what NBA basketball looks like. Yeah. I mean, I talk frequently on here about, you know, just the ability of different players to find ways to earn their selves earn themselves a spot in a rotation. And if you're talking about someone like Sasser, you know, okay, if you need someone to be a shooting guard off the bench who you can rely on defensively and who you can rely on to knock down catch and shoot shots, Sasser can be that guy. If you need someone coming off the bench as like a shot creator, maybe you want him to run a bit of point responsibilities, but mostly just as someone who's a three-point shooter and scorer off the bench, he can fill that role as well. You know, especially given how adept he is at jumping passing lanes, getting steals, if you bring him into the NBA and say, your focus to get minutes in this rotation is if you play defense really well, then you'll earn minutes. And if you don't, then you won't. There's a pathway for him that way as well. So, you know, it's not just like with Cam Thomas, if for some reason his scoring doesn't translate from college to the NBA, he's out of the league, right? And, you know, he's scored enough that I think someone's going to, keep giving him chances at least for a little while to figure out everything else. But there is a, he has to figure out everything else aspect to it. Right. Whereas with Sasser, it's like, okay, you know, if he continues to struggle from three point range, he's still going to generate a lot of steals. He's still gonna, you know, put a lot of pressure on the rim. He's still going to knock down his free throws when he gets all the way to the rim. There's a lot of different ways in which he could find his way into an NBA rotation And because of that, it's a lot easier to project him as someone who, you know, okay, maybe he won't quite be a multi-time all-star, but you can see him being someone who, you know, starts out his NBA career, like 
on the edges of rotation and over time works his way into being someone like a Lowry or even someone like a Maxi or a Jordan Poole who doesn't play much year one, year two, figures out more stuff by year three and by year three, year four, all of a sudden everybody's looking back and saying, why did this guy fall all the way to the late twenties? Yeah, that's, I, I mean, that's, you, you said it perfectly. That's why I like him so much. And, you know, he's, he's a mature player who, he does know his strengths and he knows his weaknesses. And I, I think he knows that he is, yeah, the the main option on this team. But I also don't think he's a selfish player either. So I, I think he's proven in different ways. I thought, you know, he went into uh, a tough spot like the draft combine and the G League elite camp and like was able to play within NBA context. That's kind of something that we saw. He looked like he belonged and almost like he was playing at, a, at different speeds. Um, he was able to play with different big men throughout his career. Now he's getting to play with a, a guy like Jarris Walker, who very much so is like a modern day NBA forward. There's just a lot of, you know, uh, pathways and opportunities that he's gotten through his career to prepare him for that next level to play in different iterations of different NBA teams. Cause even though there's, you know, everybody says like NBA teams play the same way, they really don't you know, to the, maybe to the naked eye, it, it, it looks very similar because ultimately teams are trying to get the same kinds of shots, but the ways in which they get these shots are ultimately pretty different. So I think that Sasser has done enough throughout his career that he's just, he'll, he'll find ways to get onto the floor because like you said, he'll do, he'll be okay doing the dirty work defensively and getting in somebody's shirt and trying to be a hound at the point of attack and getting easy points in the passing lanes. And then, you know, he's a blur. He's, I, I think his speed is something that's underrated. I think, you know, one of the things that when we talk about athleticism, I think we don't talk enough about how speed is like a really good way for NBA guards to get to the hoop and, and finish. Because if you can get to the hoop before a big man can rotate over to you, you're not shooting that same contested jumper. So even if you can't put one down on someone's head, like he still has a speed to beat guys to the spot. So there's there's just a lot for me that intrigues me about what he could look like in in the NBA. And uh, you know, I, I think he's he's going to be a guy who finds success. Hopefully, he he ends up in you know more of a Jordan Poole situation than a Cam Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap things up here, I just wanted to talk quickly about Deron Holmes the second, the Dayton Flyers big man, and the place I wanted to start with discussing Holmes is on the defensive side of things because, you know, when evaluating his offense, I mean, he's very efficient on that end of the floor. He's, you know, solid enough post-up player, really great as a cutter, exceptional in transition. Defensively though, is where I'm really fascinated with his sort of projection because on the one hand, I mean, he's one of the best shot blocking prospects in the country. You know, I don't think that's too controversial of a take. But, you know, it's sort of in a strange position because he's 6'10", and his offensive skill set really makes him pretty much a pure five at this point. And so that's sort of where I, you know, am having some questions with with his defense and would love to hear your opinion on it because I feel like he's, you know, quick enough to cover most centers foot speed-wise, especially as a drop guy, but... I'm not quite sure he's quick enough as a four full time. And I guess my question is about what are your thoughts on him sort of outside of a drop scheme? Because I have full confidence that he'll just be able to sit back near the rim and project shots as 
uh, big in a drop scheme. But I think that, you know, if he's going to go late in the first round, which is where I would have him on my board, I think a team would have to have some, some thought that he'd be able to be a switch guy at the next level. And I think he can in spurts, but I don't know. I feel like he just makes so much more sense as a drop big, but also he's maybe slightly undersized for a pure center. I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of going all over the place here, but I'm curious what you think about Holmes, you know, generally defensively, but also, you know, sort of what his scheme versatility might be, because again, I'm very confident in him in drop. I'm less confident in switching schemes, but I still think he can do it. Yeah. Holmes is a tricky one for me. And I agree with you. Like when he's in drop, I think he looks a little bit more comfortable, but, and I think he does have to be a five and he's going to have to get stronger, but ultimately, you know, I think the strength is not like he needs to get stronger so he can handle, you know, the block or whatever. I think it'll be, he needs to get stronger more so, so he can, you know, finish through contact and, uh, at the NBA level and, and maybe hit the, the, the glass a little bit harder. But from a defensive perspective, he has these moments um, where like he'll be playing a drop and then, you know, he's he's got the guard coming at him and he's able to stay with the guard. Right. I think when he gets in position where he can funnel a guard to one side and keep his momentum on the side that he's coming off the ball screen, I think he looks really good moving laterally with that guard. I think where for me it gets tricky is I think he's got really tight hips. And if I'm looking at it where it's like he's playing in a playoff series and the team is in a switch scheme, it does seem like he would be right now where he's at a guy that a team could target because if you get a guy who can move really well side to side, I think it could be hard for him to flip his hips enough while keeping that same kind of mobility that he shows where like, he's just funneling a guy into one direction. And that's where I think he can get in a little bit of trouble. So he's, he's tricky because he has these moments where he shows it, but I'm also like, he might be a guy who would really benefit if he did a ton of yoga or something. And he worked on his flexibility and his movement because there are just moments where there's like this slight stiffness and I think I see that on both sides of the ball. Uh, I think offensively, it's probably a little bit less detrimental because he, I don't foresee him being a guy who's like, all right, here's the ball, go create. Like, even though he gets those opportunities a little bit with Dayton, I think more so the stuff you see with him setting screens or slipping screens, rolling to the rim hard, getting out in transition, like being in the dunker spot. I, I think that is more so how he would be used in the NBA. But defensively, I do think, you know, he's he's going to have to show that he can kind of guard in different ways and not just be a drop pick if he's has the potential to be like a starting level player. If he's going to be a bench player who's maybe more of like an energy guy, I think you can get away with, all right, this guy's not very scheme versatile. And if you're drafting a big at the end of the first round in the beginning of the second round, you're probably just hoping you get a rotation player anyway. So, uh, you know, if he can, though, show that throughout the course of the year, and I do think that Dayton's going to have to, you know, win more games and him be the, you know, big reason that they do it. I do think there's a chance that people will start getting, especially, you know, when he starts knocking down threes in workout season, that uh, people are going to be like, is he the guy, the best center after Victor? Because I don't think that anybody's run away 
with that title. I think Kalel Ware is probably in the lead right now, but I don't think he's lapping people by any means. Derek Lively certainly looks like a guy who is definitely is either going to round himself into shape or be a, a multi-year guy in the league. So there, you know, there's going to be opportunities where a team might be drafting more for fit towards the middle end of the first round. And if he could show some of these things like that, we're concerned about, uh, he's got a good a shot as anybody probably of kind of being the guy who goes a little bit higher than we expect. So I do want to see him guard in multiple schemes and see how he handles that throughout the year. Because the other thing is he's still young, even though he's been in college, you know, for a year. And, you know, when you're, you have the responsibility of having the entire defense on your shoulders, you know, it, it is also a process like a point guard would have a process reading different things for the, you know, reading the defense to find his, his man in different spots. The, the big man is going to have to kind of figure out patterns and what works and how to, and, and that's a process as well. So just cause he's not showing it consistently early on, doesn't mean that he, you know, won't show it by the end of the season. Yeah, that's a great point on his hip flexibility. I think that's a huge part of it because for me, the main struggle was just he looks like he moves well laterally when he's just sliding on the perimeter. But it's when he has to do more than that when he's involved in multiple actions that I start getting a bit nervous. So, yeah, I mean, maybe that is something that, you know, who knows, just give him a subscription to some yoga program and go from there. But (laughs) right. Yeah, I mean, it is really an interesting conversation behind Wemanyama for who's the best center in this class right now. And it's a lot more wide open than I think we expected it to be heading into the season. And I think a huge part of that is that Lively has not shown up to the degree that people had hoped he would. And, you know, as Tyler Rucker would always say, it takes time. Maybe second half of the season, Derek Lively is a very different player from first half of the season, Derek Lively. But you know, until someone claims that spot, it's certainly up for the taking for Holmes. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe lively has kind of like a a Mark Williams freshman season where he really came on at the end when he really felt comfortable. But for me, when I came into the, this year, I was kind of out on lively and where as lottery guys. And I had them both in like, I don't know. It was either 16, 17 or 17, 18, like back to back because I just, from a basic level, I was like, a guy like Jalen Duran, who looked like a 25 year old man as a 17 year old boy, um, was a guy who went in the late lottery of that draft. Mark Williams went outside the lottery and was like very, very good for Duke last year. And now is like struggling. I mean, I don't even know if how many games he's played for Charlotte. Like he's a guy who's in the G league right now. Um, and I looked and I was like, Jalen Duran was like the best player on his AAU team that had Derek Lively on it, who is supposed to be in the same class. And I was like, so I just am, I was like, I don't see a standout big man. And if I think if you're trying to convince yourself in this modern NBA that a big man is supposed to be the guy just because there's nobody else, I feel like that's where we're going to get ourselves in trouble because the NBA doesn't really want those guys now. They want, the guys that look like Cam Whitmore, you know, like they, they don't want the, the big men who are like question marks. They want unicorns. They don't want just like, you know, whatever Tyson Chandler was. And, you know, like even Kalel Ware, who's shown the ability to step out and knock down threes, like he's looked good doing that. Um, I think he's looked pretty fluid out on the perimeter. I think he's got a chance to be the, a guy who goes in the lottery if he continues to play like this, but 
even Kalel Ware, it's like there's no guarantee, even with any of these teams that might not have been the lottery, that they're like, we have to take a big man and they might just go other directions, even if Kalel Ware is just like, yeah, he's like kind of like a, a unicorn, but like not really, right? Like, yeah, because yeah, uh, if you're not going to be that unicorn, t- a team might just be like, all right, can you set screens, roll to the rim, dunk the ball, and maybe run some DHOs and, and like do some short roll passing? And, you know, so it's like, it, it's almost like, like, I don't know if any of those guys that we talk about in homes where or lively are going to be able to like consistently make short roll passes. Cause watching homes, I think that he's shown good, like pretty good vision as a passer yeah, this year. But I think that his processing speed is slow. So I, I think at the division one level, sometimes like he can make these reads and like find the open man, but the timing in which he does it is something that I don't necessarily see translating because for him, a lot of times, especially when he's like passing out of the post, like if a team's doubling down, he's almost waiting exactly to where if the team doubles him and he has to like take a retreat dribble before he passes, where any of these guys who are really good passers, they already know that they're going to make the pass. Like they're not reacting to this double. They they know the double's going to come and they know where the open man is going to be. So they pass it like earlier instead of later. And that processing speed, I think is really important especially when you're you know, going to be making a short roll pass, which, you know, look, there's only so many options that you, you have out of the short roll. And typically, you know, you want to hit, you know, probably the weak side corner or whoever, but you're going to have to make that decision in a split second. So I, I want to see Holmes processing speed kind of speed up a little bit. Yeah, he's made a couple of cross-court passes this season that have had me really encouraged for him being able to do that in the longer term. But I think it's just a reps issue. And certainly from what Dayton's offense has done early this year, he'll have a lot more opportunities to make those reads than he had last year. So, you know, if he continues to show those kinds of cross-court reads that I was really excited about when he made them, then, you know, maybe we look at him as more of a short-roll passing threat. But That's, I think, something that we'll have a much better idea about by the end of the season than we do now, just because last year he wasn't really even asked to make those reads, whereas this year he is he's asked to do that to a certain extent. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how well he does at it in the longer term. And I think Kobe Bray is finally back. So, you know, that'll probably help having that extra spacing, not have everything so condensed on the floor, giving him that extra room. Uh, So I think that'll help kind of open things up and give him more passing options but yeah i think holmes is definitely a guy that you keep tabs on and uh and you know you just you're like this is a guy who he could have a couple of moments like he could have a stretch where he's just like wow like he figured it out and because he's he's got tools he certainly has has the tools and um with the lack of depth like like we said i think it's up for grabs all right anything else you want to cover here before we wrap things up no i think you know for me that's that's going to be it. All right. Any, any plugs you want to toss out before I close out? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, uh, read, uh, my, my Marcus Sasser piece for a kind yes. of, so you can get a visual for the specific things that we were speaking about. And, you know, if you're somebody who's skeptical about like making player comparisons as a evaluation tool, I, I think that the piece that I did on Sasser and that I'll be doing throughout this cycle is something that maybe will help you see it again as a tool and not as 
that you could use in your evaluation tool belt and not as something that you know you should rely on but you could learn to find specific patterns that work and when you use that with nba film you'll see why i think that you know making player comps is such an integral part to what we do and not just you know this guy is athletic and he's a shooting guard so he is michael jordan even though Deshaun Stevenson, you know, probably had some MJ type of moments in the finals against the Miami Heat, if you ask, you know, LeBron back in. Well, I'm sure, you know, in high school, he had some MJ-esque moments, right? Against sure. High schoolers. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Right. There you go. All right. He is Corey Tulliba. You can find him on Twitter at Corey Tulliba, and you can find his written work on No Ceilings NBA. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can also find my written work on No Ceilings NBA. If you enjoyed the podcast, please check out Corey's article on Marcus Sasser, as well as my recent article on Deron Holmes II, both up on NoCeilingsNBA.com. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end, especially now that we are weekly here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed, or rather daily every week. That was really well done by me. But the <laughs> No Ceilings NBA podcast is now daily, so please leave a rating and or a review if you've been enjoying the podcast. And again, if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.